Most of you know my story, some of you don't. I was raised by a single mom. I was at the babysitters all day. My mom worked two jobs just to make ends meet. My blood father left my mom and I when I was one. He's a multimillionaire in Beverly Hills, California. He's got the same name as me. His name's David Bendett. And I didn't meet him until I was 28 years old. But the time that I was five, my mom uh, hooked up with a man that would become my stepfather and ultimately would bring the spirit of adoption into my life at five. But I had brokenness inside of my soul from what happened with my blood father, and I didn't even know it. Neglect, abandonment, which led into a performance mentality of trying to measure up and please everybody so that I wouldn't get rejected. I found my value based on what I did and how talented I was, and I used that to my own gain my entire life, even in my early years as a Christian. I thought that in order to be accepted in the church and to fit in, I needed to measure up and perform, and that's the religious lie. The religious lie is that your value is based on what you do, and we get our self-esteem needs met based on what we do, not who we are. So my heartbeat for Rock City Church and my wife's heartbeat is that you would understand what it means to be a son and a daughter, and that you would come to the place where you would just tell on yourself and admit, I don't really know what it means to be a son and a daughter. And there are telltale signs of when you live like an orphan. You have skewed views of how the father feels about you. You check out into drugs, alcohol, and addiction because you're broken and you're missing something inside of you. But you can't fix missing. You can only replace it. And you replace it with something better. And instead of trying to go back and retake what, we were, what was lost in our childhood, we allow the father to come in and restore us back to childlikeness. Because I'm not going to go back to a pacifier. But I'm going to go back to being filled with wonder and awe of the beauty and radiance of what God has done and thinking and dreaming and believing like a child. And I'm going to go back to innocence. And I'm going to live my life upright. And I'm going to go back to honor and integrity and having a good name the way that the Proverbs instructs children. We're going to talk about that today. But what I want you all to know is as we continue to teach on marriage and family and reclaiming the promises of God for our life, that everyone here has had some sort of broken past or was an orphan at some time. Even my children will live like an orphan until they come to the Lord. And when I mean an orphan, what I mean is they won't really know who they really are until they make the decision to accept Jesus Christ as their father. You know what orphans do? They fight over their toys. They kick, they bite, they scream, they yell. And you have to teach our children, and we teach our children, but ultimately, their nature has to be changed. Ultimately, they will have to make the decision for themselves to give their lives to Jesus Christ. And there's a way to do that. And what some of you have done is you've said, I'm never going to raise my children the way my parents did or the way I was raised. That is not a good vow. And I would encourage you not to make that vow. Let me tell you that there's a better way. Everybody say there's a better way. Here's the better way. I'm going to raise my children and love them the way the Father raises me and loves me and teaches me. And I'm going to guide and instruct them based on the biblical principles. Because when you make a vow to not do it the way your parents did, you're, you're leading and living from the wrong tree. The wrong tree is the knowledge of good and evil, of right and wrong. So when you say, I'm not going to do what they did, that becomes your bearing. That becomes your standard. So now you're doing everything you can not to do what your parents did. It's fear-based, and it's a vow and a judgment that's unhealthy. Let's say it again. 
there's a better way. The better way is I'm going to teach and train my children with the love that the Lord has for me with grace, kindness, mercy, gentleness. I'm going to be firm. I'm going to instruct them. Yes, I will discipline them, but I will do it all with beautiful love the way that the Lord has had for me. And that's the understanding of Proverbs 22.6. In Proverbs 22.6, it says, train a child up in the way they should go so that when they're older or when they're old, they will not depart. Another way to say it is start your children off right. This is another way to say it. I firmly believe that things don't go wrong, they start wrong. Yes, my kids will make mistakes. Yes, they will do things that they shouldn't do because they have to learn. And it's in our failures, which we all have failed, that we learn the mercy and the kindness of the Lord. But there's some failures I never want my children to make. I don't want them to run in front, out into the street without looking both ways or without me standing there telling them, do not or yes, you can or hold my hand. Because hit by a car is not a good mistake to make. And there are a lot of things that you teach and you guide and you instruct your children and you show them. But you also understand that they're going to make mistakes and they're going to fail. And what you need to show them even more is the mercy and the kindness and the forgiveness of the Lord, just like he showed it to you. And some of you are having a hard time accepting the forgiveness of the Lord. I've had congregants tell me, I can't, I'm having a hard time forgiving my own parents. But until you can fully release them and forgive them, you'll walk in bitterness and hurt and pain, and subconsciously you'll even pass that on to your children, or you'll act out. The greatest way that you can teach and train your children is by the way you live your life. What are you, trust me, you got little eyes everywhere. You got little eyes everywhere. And if your children are raised and gone, or you don't have children, or if you couldn't have children, or you're older in life, whatever your story is, let me make sure you all understand something. I would love for you to be a part of raising my own children because my kids are going to be raised in this church and I don't want them to spin out like so many PKs did, but I'm not going to be afraid of that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show them the extravagance and the greatness of the Lord. I'm going to show him his kindness and I'm even going to show him his discipline and I'm going to instruct them and I'm going to teach them that a better name is better than riches, that to gain wisdom is more precious than silver and gold. And I'm going to be wild and I'm going to be full of joy. And when I danced around with my daughter last night at the wedding, and we were spinning around at Oscar and Olivia's wedding, which was powerful, by the way. The Lord showed up mightily. My daughter had a glean in her eye as she looked at me, and we spun around, and we spun around and said, this is the Father's love. Because I'm going to date my daughter, and I'm going to show her, and I'm going to show my son what biblical manhood should look like. And you know what? It's not going to be full of religious rules and policies and regulations, and it's not going to be done with fear. It's going to be done with life and joy, dance parties, extravagant worship, praying in tongues, laying hands on the sick, seeing them recover, busting up some demons, seeing people laid out on the floor while they step over them. I don't care what it looks like. It's going to be done at bike rides and mountain climbing and scuba diving and spear fishing. It's going to be done along the way when I rise, when I sit in my house in the park and everywhere I go. And the word of God is gonna always be before me because we become the word in flesh. You actually become a son and a daughter and now you're an open written book for your kids to see. And there's no fear because it's like the air I breathe. I don't even have to try. So now when my kids get a little, it's so funny, my kids find ailments on their body, don't they? A mosquito bite, a tiniest little scratch, 
They find him. You know why? Because when it's prayer time at night, I say, come on, what are we praying for tonight? Pray for my, pray for my scratch. I need, and then a lot of times, like, I know they're not really overly hurt, and I, for, and I just move on. And then when I say amen, and my daughter goes, Daddy, you didn't pray for my finger that I hurt today. I'm like, well, give me your hand. And I teach my kids when we have moments and outpourings here, I'll have them follow me around. And as you're weeping and crying and you're weeping and crying and you're weeping and crying and you and you and you and you, you feel a little hand touch your back. You know who it is? My little three-year-old. And you know who else it should be? Your three-year-old. Man, who's ready to shout? Yeah! We have to change the way that we think. This is not church as usual. We have millions of children being raised in homes that are dysfunctional with abuse and pain. And some of you were raised that way. And you never had a dad and you have a disconnect with the father's love and don't really see him as good. And you come in here and I'm under the microscope and you got a, a, a fear of religious thing. Let me just tell you, I hate it too and I don't want it either. Will you help me break it? I need help. And if you check out and you leave, How's it ever going to get fixed? I want you to help raise my kids, and I want to raise yours. I want, I want our kids to grow up and never, ever saw what you saw. I don't want them to ever be afraid. My kids can approach me up on the stage, and they can worship, and they can come over and look at you and give you a hug, pray for you, high-five you, pray for you, dance around you. I don't care. I don't teach my kids stranger danger. I teach them, rock them with the Holy Ghost. I got to come up with another, somebody help me come up with a line. I teach them, you know what? And yes, we teach them boundaries and we teach them to be, you know, never take candy from a stranger you don't know and don't get in a car, of course. But we're not going to walk in fear. We're out to rescue the world, not run and hide from them. And I know there's jacked up crazy people that kidnap, kidnap kids. That's why I watch them close. We know where they're at. We know what they do. And we're going to keep them around a great, healthy family like y'all because the culture defines what's normal. And imagine if I had 500 mamas and papas. Imagine if I never had to put a rules and policies on the wall, but all of us knew what's normal and it's extravagance of love and health. And wait a minute, uh, we don't know you and no, you shouldn't be walking out with that kid. And at the same time, we have great security and we have great children's ministry and we do things with health and guidance and comfort and protection the way it should be done, okay? So back to the scripture. Train a child up in the way that they should go. You know who your first discipler is or should be? is your parents. You should be the disciplers of your own children. You are the direct disciplers. And if you don't disciple them, guess who will? The world. And they'll be discipled just like we were a lot of us were when we were kids. For me, it was 80s rock and roll and Motley Crue concerts and ACDC and the Grateful Dead and Led Zeppelin. And I mean, I grew up in a world of partying and keg parties and drugs and uh, promiscuous lifestyle because that's what was teaching me and that was what was normal in my high school. A lot of you are like, yep, I've been there. And I was discipled as an orphan by the spirit of this age. And I want to tell you, I don't want my kids to be raised in a religious dysfunctional church either. I don't want my kids to be taught warped religion. I want them to know the Lord for who he really is, and I want to be the best example to show them what that looks like. Because it's train a child up in the way they should go, not in the way that I went, or the way that even I think they should go. It's train a child up in the right way. Everybody say the right way. 
So there's a right way. And the book of Proverbs is filled with the contrast of a pattern of two paths. Two paths, okay? So look at Proverbs 411. I love 411. You know why? Because it's God's information hotline. Mark 411, unto you the mysteries of the kingdom of God have been revealed. 1 Peter 4.1.1, anybody that speaks, speaks, speaks as God gives the ability and speaks the oracles of God. And P- Proverbs 4.1.1, I've taught you in the way of wisdom, and I've led you in the right path. So there's a right path. There's two paths. And the book of Proverbs is instruction from a father and even a mother of the right way to go. And so there is a right way. It's gaining wisdom versus riches. It's having a good name. Loving favor, humility, fear of God, honor, listening and obeying instruction, living without self-interest, avoiding the path of the wicked at all contrast. So it's profound, the comparison of the two paths. The path of the right way is straight, unencumbered, and safe. The other path is torturous, hazardous, and marked by violence. We want our kids to go on the path of light, not the path of darkness. One leads to promise, while the other leads to stumbling destruction. And we can instruct and guide and teach our children the way of life, but the best way you can teach them is to live it for yourself. That's the best thing that you can do. You can't delegate it to me. You can't delegate it to Melody. The best thing you can do is make the decision to say, I don't care where you've been or what you've done, it's never too late. Stop listening to the lies of your past. Don't let shame hold you back from your future. It's never too late. If you are breathing right now and hearing my voice, it's not too late. He's the God of a million chances. And you have a purpose and a promise of training children millions and millions of little lies that are gonna look up to you And I'll give you every opportunity to do it right here at Rock City. We should have a line of people on a waiting list to volunteer in the children's ministry. Why would we ever have to fight for children's volunteers? Ever. The greatest thing we can do is turn our gaze and attention to the next generation. Oh, let me tell you, I think I came from the most broken generation. I was Generation X. And you know what Generation X was? It was was devoid of any understanding and identity. And it produced the millennials. Fatherless generation was my generation. That's what we reproduced. And we can break that. We can break the greatest dysfunction of society, which is fatherlessness. That's why the Lord chooses to identify himself as a father. Inside the heart of God is both the nature of a man and a woman, whether you like to hear that or not. You know why? Because God created them in his image. So he has a mothering heart and he has a fathering heart. But he chooses to identify himself as a father because of the issue of fatherlessness in this generation. And all the generations. That's why God would wrap up the Old Testament in Malachi 4.6 with a profound statement. The last scripture in the Old Testament, you guys go read it yourself, the last scripture in the Old Testament says, I'm sorry, the second to last, verse five. <laughs> they go together. They're like one, 
one for me. Verse five says that he would send the spirit of Elijah and he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the sons to the fathers so that, verse six says, he doesn't strike the earth with a curse. The Lord is all about engendering. Rooted in the word generations is to generate and engender or to raise up sons and daughters. So if I focus my intention on the generations to come, God will provide every need for me. If I focus my attention on my priorities, which is number one, him, number two, my wife, and number three, my children, and number four, you. That's the, that is the way and the pattern for everybody. Number one is you and the Lord. Number two, when you get married, is your spouse. And if you're divorced or widowed, then it's back to the Lord for everything. And then number three is your children. My children don't come before my wife. And number four is the bride of Christ is the body. So everybody has a responsibility to be actively involved in training children by representing and being an example of the way that they should live. And I'll show you that in a moment. Jesus' parents did that. Mary and Joseph did that with Jesus. Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of Proverbs 22.6 because Jesus would be trained up in the way he should go, and when he was older, guess what? He never, ever departed, right? And do you know that Jesus would have to discover who he was? Jesus didn't always. You think Jesus, when he was a baby and couldn't talk or walk, knew who he was? He's a baby, he had to become exactly like a man and walk as a man and discover, everybody say discover, discover, who he was. And you guys have to discover who you are. And that's why you need a clarion voice to tell you, you're a son, you're a daughter, stop living like an orphan. We need people that show what's normal, what healthy looks like. Come on, guys. I'll do, my, I'll do my best to be it for you, and so will my wife. We love you. We're, te- we're doing this whole thing on marriage and family so that we can raise the bar and the standard for the way we're all supposed to live. We're in desperate need for fathers. Desperate need. We can't put our children in a destiny box. We can't box up their destiny. We have to release them to thrive and flourish and soar the way that they're called to soar, just like Jesus did. So Jesus would have to discover. I think Jesus discovered who he was at 12. That's what I believe. I think Jesus didn't get the revelation until he was 12. Here's why. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Jesus' parents, I love how it just starts out with the parents. I've said this many times as a youth pastor The greatest issue I had wasn't with kids that were hurting and broken. It was with the parents. Because it didn't matter what I did in the youth group. If they went back home to abuse, brokenness, drugs, alcohol, fighting and dysfunction, and a checked out dad, more often than not, they would revert back to the way that they were. So Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem how often? Every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. You have got to get healthy customs in your life for your children to follow, because when Jesus was older, it says, as was his pattern, he would teach in the temples, and he would preach the kingdom of God everywhere he went. And so 
No, while our kids are in our home, it's not an option. They're coming with us to church. And I want them to come to a church that they want to be at. And I'm just going to tell you right now, and I'm not going to believe it's just because they're three and five, our kids ball their eyes out when they don't get to come to church. And they love it. And they love coming here. Now, we don't want to wear them out with so much church that, it, that they lose that fascination and wonder, but I want my kids to see joy, passion, excitement, celebration, and have a heart like David did because when we come here, we should say, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Not man, church again. Listen, I'm trying to build a church that I would want to go to, which means it's got to be full of life and healing and power and signs and wonders and miracles and identity and mamas and papas and people to turn to that are healthy and strong and there's hope and joy and excitement and extravagant worship. Come on, who wants boring dead worship? Not, I mean, that was my kind of worship today. And I know some of you, like that's new for you and may be odd for you. And it's like, man, the dancing and the lifting of the hands doesn't make any sense. Here's what I want to tell you. David did it and Jesus did it. David and Jesus did it. And it's all over in the Bible. So we're worshipers and we're teaching our children to worship. And so we have customs. We honor the Lord. He, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate feast, by the way. Because he says he's the living bread, the bread of life. He's the living water. He's the vine and we're the branches. We can't do anything without him. And he says, he's the light of the world. And he says, get your daily bread. So I'm eating. I'm feasting on Jesus. And I'm teaching. My children are seeing a dad that feasts on Jesus and a mom that feasts on Jesus all the time. And so we come to the house of the Lord to worship. And when they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother didn't know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. Let me just tell you guys, that must have been a really big entourage going up to the feast with his family. All of his relatives and all of his acquaintances. Isn't it nice to have a whole group of people that are extravagant worshipers that come up to feast on the Lord and come up to his presence that are your family and your friends? So they had so many people that had gone to the feast that they leave and they don't even know where their son's at. And I'm going to tell you, don't do that. Don't come to Rock City and leave your kids here. Don't forget where your kids are at. This is an example of what not to do, okay? But Jesus is sitting at the temple for three days. Let's look at the next verse. For three days, keep going, verse 26 or 46. He was sitting in the midst of the teachers, and what was he doing? He was listening to them, and he was asking them questions at 12. I want a 12-year-old that is inquisitive and excited to know about the Lord and willing to sit and ask you questions. Because Jesus was asking those that were in the temple, and if this is done right, my kids will look at you and say, tell me about the Lord, and start asking you questions and wanting to know. We become the examples. So he was looking to them, and he was listening, and he was asking them questions, and everyone who heard what he said was astonished at his understanding and his answers. He had understanding, wisdom, he was beyond his years at 12. I want our kids to be like that, don't you? And so Jesus would get a revelation at 12 years old. And I'll paraphrase the rest of it for you. Jesus' parents come back and say, 
Why did you do this to us? Jesus' mom says, why did you leave? Why did you stay here? Don't you know that we've been looking for you and your father and I have been looking for you? And Jesus gets it. He goes, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And Jesus would give a revelation of his heavenly father at 12. And I want to teach my kids at 12, they got a greater daddy. And I want to tell my kids, guess what? You're a son, not just mine even before 12. But Jesus would start asking questions. Wait a minute, I've been hearing the word for 12 years. My parents have been, been taking me to the temple for 12 years. I've been hearing all these things. And what about this prophecy? And what about that prophecy? And he'd start realizing the prophecies were about him. And then he'd get the revelation. This is what I believe. I believe Jesus figured it out right here. But Jesus wouldn't be able to step into his ministry and who he was called to be until he was continued until he continued to be subject to his parents for the next 18 years. Look at the next verse. They didn't understand the statement she spoke, verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and it says he was subject to them. Jesus was subject to his parents. The word subject means to be submitted. It means to be under their authority. It means to be... Uh, a, a, a foundational support underneath their parents, but to be guided and instructed and yielded to his parents. And it says that his mother kept all these things in his heart, in her heart. We need parents that can be subjected to. We need parents that, are, that our children can look up to and be yielded to and submitted to in a healthy way. And we need to teach them what that looks like to be submitted to the Lord in a healthy way. We need to teach them what it means to be subjected. So if we are in subjection to our Heavenly Father, ultimately we'll teach our children the right way to be subjected to us. Not with dominance, not with hard discipline, but with grace and mercy. And sometimes you're going to show them really difficult discipline, but you're going to do it always with grace and mercy and communication and love with the way the Lord's had for you. And so his mother kept all the things in her, in her heart. And look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. For 18 years, Jesus would grow in wisdom and stature and favor in everything that he did, both with the Lord and with men. And then when he'd start his ministry at 30, he'd get baptized. The heavens would open and everybody would hear a statement from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And until you hear sonship, daughtership, identity, you're never going to be able to step into the more that the Lord has in store for you. You got to get the main thing, the main thing. And that's who you are. I want my kids to have a revelation of who their father really is, that I'm their earthly father, but there's a better daddy. There's a better daddy. And I'm teaching that to my kids now. So Jesus would increase and I want our kids to increase here at Rock City Church. Jesus would have a great love for children. Luke 18, 15 through 17. Parents would bring their children and their babies to Jesus for Jesus to touch them. The word touch in the Hebrew means to be attached to. So parents would bring their children to Jesus as babies and as infants at a young age to be touched by Jesus, and the religious disciples would rebuke them to keep the children away. And they would do that because the, the lack of understanding of the importance of children because of religion. Religion will keep your children away from Jesus, but we're not going to do that here. Jesus would say, let the little children come to me, 
and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So the first thing is, parents, have a desire for your children to know Jesus and bring them to him. That's why we have the kids in here for the first 20 minutes of worship so that they could see how we worship and ultimately we're bringing our kids up front to learn how to worship. Second of all, at night when I, my kids go to bed, I pray over them and I prophesy over them and I, in a sense, bring them to Jesus. And the way I live and talk about the Lord brings them to Jesus. I want them to ultimately make the decision based on the example that I set for them. That's what I hope and pray for. I pray that we can be a good example for our kids. So Jesus had a desire for the children to come to him. He wanted the children to come because it says he called them to him. He called the children to him. So he had a desire for the children. And then he says, unless you receive the kingdom like a little child, you won't enter it. So he would use children as the standard of how to receive what God has for you. See, children aren't jaded and warped by religion. Children don't have a preconceived idea. They have an innocence and a trust in the Lord. And they come to him with, with the, like they should come to their parents with honor and trust. And childlikeness is the way that we're to come to our children. It's humility. It's transparency. It's sincerity. So we have to be humbled like a child because when you're humbled like a child, it makes you the greatest in the kingdom. Matthew 18, 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest of the kingdom in the kingdom of heaven? So the disciples are wanting to know who is the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus would do something profound. He'd say, let me give you the best example to teach you who's the greatest. And he would again call the children to him, and he would set them in his presence. Jesus wants children to be in his presence. And he would call them, and he'd set them down in his midst. And he, would, and he said, assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted, there must be a conversion in your life to childlikeness. You must get converted back to innocence and childlikeness. And if you were robbed as a child, abused, hurt, dysfunctional home, no mama, no papa, orphaned and abandoned, you can go back to the wonder and the fascination and the discovery of the beauty of what God has for you and, in a sense, come back into childlikeness and innocence to believe and receive everything that God has for you. And so he would say that you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have to humble yourself, verse 4, as a little child, because the little child, whoever humbles himself as a little child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives a child, a little child like this, in my name receives me. So Jesus would use children as the representation of himself. Guys, you got to get this. He would say, look, if you receive one of them, guess who you're really actually receiving? Me. That's how much Jesus loved kids. That's how much Jesus loved children. And he would say, be simple. Be humble. Trust. Be converted. So Jesus would go on to equip and empower and send out children. And he, he called 70 two to himself, and he sent them out in Luke chapter 10 to go do ministry. And when they came back, 
with signs and wonders and miracles and doing everything that God called him to do, he said this in Luke 10, 21. Jesus would dance wildly and extravagantly because that's what the word rejoice means. And he'd said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, as so it seemed good in your sight. Now, let me tell you about this word babes. It's not like, hey, babe. It's not like babes. It's babes. The word for babes in the Greek is an infant, a child, or someone that's not fully trained or immature or young. Now, I don't know how old they were. I'm imagining that they're young adults, probably, or they're young believers that have no concept and understanding fully of who they are yet, but Jesus would send them out into the streets. That's what I love about Heat Wave. We've got college students and people that have never done evangelism going out into the streets and doing what we call treasure hunts. We're praying and asking the Lord who we are to pray for and prophesy over and going out hunting these people out in the spirit, and it's powerful. And we're bringing encouragement and hope in the gospel to the streets. And we're sending out anybody that wants to go. And you can go out and discover how the Lord can use you right where you're at. And so Jesus would rejoice when the young would come back and say, wow, look what the Lord did. He revealed them to babes. He revealed himself and used babes. It's powerful. The word literally means an unskilled, untaught, or young, immature believer. And that's why we can't red tape people. Now, I can't entrust the work of the ministry to a novice, meaning I'm not going to put young, immature people into oversight positions, but I will send you out to preach the gospel and to let the Lord work through you. You can all evangelize and do what God's called you to do right where you're at. You can do it. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, what's the first thing he did? He went right to the temple and he had righteous indignation and was angry with the money changers. He flipped over the tables. He ripped out the seats from underneath those that were selling doves. And he makes this profound statement. He says, my house, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. So think about this. He rides in, Palm Sunday, Palm leaves. Everybody's crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And all these crazy things are happening. It's powerful. And Jesus goes to the temple, flips up the tables. And as soon as he flips up the tables, he says, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. He flips up the tables, and then he says, I mean, I can only imagine the scene. He cries out, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. And then he says, who is sick and lame? Here, come here, I want to pray for you. So he comes into Jerusalem, flips the tables, chases out the money changers, declares a house of prayer, and then he says, is there anybody sick or lame? Come here. Look at the scripture. Matthew 21, 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So he's in the temple. Right after he flips everything up, the blind and the lame can't come. And check this out. The scribes are there in verse 15. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children, and the what? The who? What were they doing? They were crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The Pharisees and the scribes were indignant and said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And check this out. Jesus quotes a scripture from Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 is like the garden psalm. It's like the, the garden commission psalm, okay? Go read it again. It's powerful. In Psalm chapter 8, Jesus quotes, he says, haven't you heard out of the mouth of babes and nursing 
infants? What? I mean, I can't cut that out of Scripture. Out of the, they can't even talk if they're a nursing infant. How's that going to happen? They're going to pray in tongues. Thank you. I, thank you, Jordan. I love that as a great answer. Baby tongues. What comes out of their mouth? Perfect praise. So Jesus flips over the tables, house of prayer, starts laying hands on the sick, and the children start declaring Hosanna to the son of David. The, the religious people get ticked off, and that happens here. It's the spirit of apathy. You're too wild. This church is too much, too much dancing. Music's too long, too loud, too much lifting hands. Listen, I saw, I saw seven-year-olds lifting their hands today, and I'll take that over anything else. Perfect praise coming from children. Let's teach our kids Hosanna in the highest to the son of David, right? So Psalm 8, 2, this is what Jesus quoted. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained what? We're waiting on this. Well, thank you. Strength. Some of you guys are on it. Psalm 8, 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Because of who? Because of the enemy that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. You know who the avenger is? It's not Iron Man. (laughs) The avenger that hates you, that wants to get vengeance against God and against you, God says the avenger that, the avenger that's coming against you, I'm going to silence them through children. And that's why when you give your life to Jesus, let me give you the parallel. John 1, 12, to those that receive and believe, he gives the right to become children. Now I'm a child of God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you should be a stiff, mature, know-it-all, ultra-religious, got it all figured out, been there, done that, bought all the t-shirt, Christian. So I'm going to be wilder, and I'll dance even wilder. I don't care how old I get. I want, to be, I want to be Mama Colleen's age and older and be wild in my dance. I'm just praying, Lord, keep my knees and legs up and my hips up and my back up so I can demonstrate radical praise at 100. Why not? Why not? Why can't we be more undignified? You know, not everybody's going to want it. Some people are going to leave and they're going to come check out the church and they're not going to like it and they're going to go somewhere else. And I understand it because this isn't necessarily for everyone, which is why God has a body in 300 churches in this city. But you know what I am going to do? We're going to raise up a church of extravagant lovers. Radical. Because you know why? Because some of you could go do your nine shots of tequila and get on the tables at the clubs, but you come here and you're stiff. Bam. Where did you get this religious stiff thing? When the pastor says, I'm going to outrun you, you better get up and get going because I'm telling you right now, I am on it. Don't you want a pastor that's extravagant and will run the race and try to give it, go further than I've ever gone? Why wouldn't I be extravagant in all that I do? The enemy hates you and there's an avenger against you. Become like a child and worship in innocence and honor and integrity and stay in the way and keep your children in the way and teach them a better name is better than riches and to gain wisdom is the key. And the Bible says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. You got to crucify the intellectual logical thing in your head. 
Intellect is a terrible master, but a wonderful servant. And I'm gonna leave you with this, and we're gonna pray. In the context of children defeating the enemy, look at Psalm 127, verse three. Behold, children are a heritage. The word heritage means an inheritance, a promise, a portion, and a share from who? The Lord. The reward in our lives is the fruit of our womb. The fruit of our womb is the reward of our lives and its children. And whether your womb is barren, and I'm going to believe for it not to be, and no matter where you're at, God has a reward of spiritual sons and daughters all over the world that he wants you to invest into. You know what children are like? They're like tanks, machine guns, swords. They didn't have all that then. But they're like an arrow. An arrow is a weapon of war, by the way. An arrow defeats the enemy. In fact, if you read your Bible, you'll read that the enemy actually uses fiery darts and arrows to destroy you, which is lies in your mind and wrong belief systems about who he is. So in turn, your children become like arrows. And I love that because they're weapons of warfare that have pinpoint accuracy to defeat the enemy, but those arrows are like arrows in the hand of a what? A few weeks ago, Steve Swift and I and Doug Fick led a men's group out at Fabian's, and we started pushing on men. Stand up, Jeremy. We started pushing them, said, get in position, and we pushed against each other, and we had the men declare... I'm not kidding. We had the men, and we shouted and said, come on, push against me. And we had the men declaring what they were fighting against, and we released the warrior spirit inside of them. And we released the promises of God the way David had it to defeat the Goliaths in their life. And we imparted a warrior spirit into the men because if our children are going to be arrows, we need some warriors. I can't expect my child to be an arrow if I'm not an archer. Man, I, I never said that before. I think I pulled a muscle pushing on you. Man, I'm, I'm getting old. So they're arrows, and we need warriors. So are the children of one youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. What is a full quiver? It's all the sons and daughters that God brings into your life. It's not one, two. It's 10, 12, 50, 100, 1,000. This is talking about natural and spiritual sons and daughters. And when you raise up sons and daughters, when wisdom is justified by her children, guess what happens? I get a call from the city council that says, will you pray? Heck yeah, I'll come pray. I get a call to go open up the MMA event at... American Bank, bank Center, will you pray? Oh, gosh, how fast can I get there? And then suddenly I have, I have police officers and outlaw bikers, not even knowing it, sitting in the same place, getting born again and transformed by the power of God. And suddenly I'm affecting every single place of community, and, and light is coming into the darkness, and my sons and daughters are standing at the gates, and I'm standing at the gates, and there's no shame. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to speak with my enemies. You know how I'm going to speak with my enemies? Let me, let me do this way. You know how I'm not going to speak with my enemies? Hey, what's up, man? Yeah. Come on. 
Let's do this. Let's go reap some wickedness and let's go release some debauchery. And it's speaking with them as me speaking over the circumstances of the city because the city gates represents authority, leadership, and power to transform a city. Because when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, all the city worshiped him and asked themselves, who is this? The city gates is the place of influence. And now I'm not ashamed because our sons and daughters and a mighty army are living the way they're supposed to live. And they're justifying the beauty and the wonder of who the Lord is because of their lives. Isn't that powerful? Let's all stand.